We are starting a series in Exodus. I am taking the daunting task of preaching 45 minutes over the entire chapter. And so uh, if you will pray for me as you listen and, and as you uh, hear about the message of uh, Exodus. So we're doing the overview today. Next week, I have a friend coming in from the East Coast to preach to you. Um, and then Sunday night, he'll be leading a theology night, and I hope you'll come and be a part of that with us. We're talking about being a missional community uh, together here at Grace Church. And so uh, my prayer is that you'll join us for a good coffee, for a good Bible talk, uh, and for Reed as he comes in to share with us about our mission as Grace Church. Um, many of us have heard the phrase, come and take it, right? That's a good Texan phrase. Come and take it. Uh, the phrase is deeply symbolic for us as Texans. I do say us. I'm from Oklahoma, but I've lived long enough in Texas that I'm going to go ahead and allow myself to be called Texan against my better judgment. Um, and most people know that the phrase come and take it refers back to the Texas Revolution and the Battle of Gonzales. However, few people actually realize that the phrase was not first used in context of battle at Gonzales. It was year, used years and years before in 480 BC in, at the Battle of Thermopylae. When, uh, most of you know the story, when King Leonidas, uh, was standing before Xerxes and Xerxes said, give me your arms, lay down your arms. And Leonidas shouted the historic Molon Labe, come and get it. And from then on out, 300 Spartans just rushing and slaughtering Persians. Again, they lost, didn't turn out so well for the Spartans, but it became a historic phrase from that moment on. After that, two millennia later, in 1778, the British Redcoats came to Georgia, Sunbury, Georgia, and they came to a fort called Fort Morris, and they told the colonial rebels, hand over the fort. And the colonel in charge there, who... Uh, interpreted his own events in kind of a Spartan-like reality, sent back to the British Redcoats as to surrendering, surrendering the fort, come and take it. And then we get to Gonzales, when we see the bronze cannon. That's what we know. But the reality is that the Texas motto, come and take it, is not essentially Texan, but Spartan at its core. So when the Texans said, come and take it, now think about how cool this is. I'm not doing any damage to Texan history here. The, the come and take it motto is better than you know. Because it's not just Texan, it's Spartan. When those Gonzalez Texans stood and they told the Mexican army, come and get it, come and take it. They were standing like Spartans, interpreting their own reality and the battle that would follow as that of the Spartans defending off the Persians. Now that's cool, isn't it? So what do we do? Well, we make t-shirts out of that slogan. It became a symbol of defiance, right? Of rebellion, of, of just staunch. This is Texan determination, right? We put it on the back of our pickup trucks. We put it on top of hats. I even in my office have a coffee mug that says, come and take it. Because you will find out my stance on coffee you try to pry that coffee cup out of my hand, come and take it. See what happens. You'll get not just a Texan, but a Spartan who loves his coffee. The point of the story is this. Symbols are important in interpreting our daily lives. We tend to attach ourselves to historical realities 
and begin to interpret our life and our present day life according to the significance and the symbolism that is played out in all history. Come and take it is our motto as Texans. And yet we're interpreting it in alignment with the great men of of the past who stood their ground and said, in times past, come and take it. But how much more does that work for the symbol, the symbols that are given to us in the Bible? Especially the symbol of the Exodus. The Exodus is a symbol, not meaning that it's not a reality, not meaning that it wasn't true or that's metaphorical or mystical. No, no, no. It's a historical reality that happened in the past and it sets our trajectory for the future. And so by reading the Exodus, we're reading our story. We're reading something that has symbolism for us today as modern day Christians, not just as a past event, not just as Israel's history, but as a symbol for our own lives. The Exodus is a redemption in miniature that is pointing to the redemption that has happened to us in Christ and that is continuing to happen to this day as people believe in the name of Jesus. So here's what I want you to hear. When you think of the word Exodus, when you think of the the great redemption of deliverance and defeat of the oppressor and God bringing out his people. I don't want you to think back of the Char- at the Charleston Heston movie, The Ten Commandments. I want you to think of your own life and what has happened to you as a reality because of your faith in Christ. The exodus we're about to study is a dress rehearsal for the, for the actual exodus that has happened in our lives as believers. And so the more we understand the symbol the more we understand our own experience, the more we understand the exodus as it happened to the people of Israel then, the more we can better appreciate what God is doing now and more passionately proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. So here's a brief overview of the entire uh, sermon that I'm going to do today. Number one, I'm going to introduce the mission of the exodus. What does the exodus want to show? And number two, I'm going to provide an outline through which we're going to understand the whole book of Exodus. And then number three, we're going to briefly identify key parallels uh, that connect the Exodus with our salvation in Christ. Now, if you've read through the book of Exodus, you see a common phrase throughout Exodus, and it establishes what the goal of the Exodus is. And that's very simply this, that you may know that I am the Lord, that you may know that I am God. And that phrase or some form of it is used at least, no less than 10 times in the first half of the book. I think it goes without saying that God wants you to see the Exodus, to read it, and to come out knowing that he is the Lord. That's the mission of Exodus. It's seen in another way, just before the seventh plague, before God sends the seventh plague to the Egyptians, he says to Pharaoh, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, And on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you. In other words, I could have just killed you with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for the purpose that I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What was the Exodus for? Not so that he could just set his people free. Yes, that's true. Not just so that he could work out this really neat and cool event at the Red Sea that we'll make movies after, 
but to show the entire world that he is God, to show who he is, that I am Lord. Now that phrase, Lord, is very specific of Yahweh. They will know that I am Yahweh, which simply means this. I am the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God who does as he says he will do. I think that's specifically what God wants the world to see through the Exodus, that he is a God who keeps every one of his promises and overcomes all hindrances to see those promises come to fruition. Now, when we think think about the promises of God, we think immediately back to Genesis, and rightfully so. I think we even think back to Genesis 15, when God told Abraham that his uh, offspring would be held captive in slavery for more than 400 years before they are released. But I think we don't press it hard enough. God is not just keeping his promise to Abraham that his offspring would be kept and captured and held in confinement and bondage of slavery. I think he's going back even further to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promise of all promises in Scripture. And here's what it says. In Genesis 3, just to set the context, uh, you know, Genesis 1, God created the world. He created men in his own image, men and women in his own image. He placed them in the garden in Genesis 2. This was the first garden-like sanctuary where men and God dwelt together. Genesis 3 tells us that God used to walk in the cool of the evening. Now just picture what that would have been like. People and God in perfect harmony together, walking hand in hand in the cool of the evening. Is a romantic, amazing picture of people with God. They had one law. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not several laws, just one. Don't eat from this tree. Trust me, it's bad for you. If you eat from it, you will die. But then in Genesis 3, things go sour. As the serpent comes and tempts God's priest king, Adam, and his wife to eat from the fruit that has been forbidden. And in their own rebellion, they try to seek, they try to become like God, being able to discern for themselves what is good and what is evil. They want to not just be able to know what is good and evil, but decide for themselves what is good and evil. And so as judgment, God declares that they are now separated from him and that they will be exiled. But before he sends them out of the garden and before their separation from God, here's what he says in their hearing. He he speaks to the serpent in their hearing, so that they will remember the promise of redemption. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So those sin resulted in the exile of all humanity. God promises a day when he will crush the serpent, defeat sin, and bring his people back and to the garden sanctuary to dwell with him forever. So yes, on the one hand, I think the Exodus shows that God is faithful to Abraham. And yet on the other hand, I think it shows that he is faithful to defeat the serpent, to crush the head of the serpent. I think in three movements, the whole book of Exodus tells us the gospel. If you want to know my summary of what I think Exodus actually is about, I think it's about the royal redeemer, who defeats both serpent and sin to dwell with his people. He defeats both serpent and sin to dwell with his people. Now, I've given you a little table 
um, to kind of show how this works out. We're not going to walk through the table. Uh, but there are three components. you got defeating the serpent, defeating sin, and dwelling with his people. It's a threefold schematic. With, you can just put that pattern on top of Exodus, and I feel like the gospel fits very nicely into that pattern. And Exodus showing that Yahweh is the God who keeps his promise, specifically his promise of Genesis 3.15. And in this way, it points to, foreshadows, and prepares us for the cross of Jesus Christ, where God would crush the serpent, defeat humanity's sin, and reestablish presence with God. So again, just like we started the book of Genesis, I don't think Exodus whispers the name of Jesus. I think it shouts it. And I think it's by approaching Exodus in the raw form, in the way that is written out, and by asking good questions about the gospel and about redemptive history that we come to realize that the Exodus is a mini story of the story that is happening for us in Jesus Christ. And my prayer is in that this really brief, really concise overview that you're going to walk away seeing how we're going to be pressing into Exodus every week, not just for history, not just because Israel is God's people, but because we believe that Exodus presents the message of the gospel to us as the people of God. The first movement of Exodus is simply this. God defeats the serpent. Who is presented, by the way, as Pharaoh. Now, we know the battle between scenes, that there's enmity. There will be enmity, hostility between your offspring and her offspring. And we see that in the very first chapter of Exodus 1. The people were growing fruitful and were multiplying and were growing on and on. And as the people of God, the seed of the woman, the people of promise, they were growing stronger and stronger and stronger. And then Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh, not the same Pharaoh uh, of Joseph's day, but a new Pharaoh rose up and listened to his serpent-like language when he says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Do you hear the snake talking in that? Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. And what happens from there is Pharaoh then takes the people of God and he oppresses them and puts them in bondage. But yet God, still faithful to his promise, allows them to grow even in their slavery, even in their bondage. And so Pharaoh, realizing he has not yet completely hindered God's work and his people, decides to try to curb it through massacre. And so he sets out to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. This is an event, I think we've got to read it for what it is. This is an event that the serpent tried to do in the garden. Pharaoh tries to do now with the Hebrew baby boys. Herod will do later to Jesus. And Revelation speaks of it as if it's a serpent, a dragon, trying to devour the woman and her offspring. That's the theme that it's setting up, is this serpent-like opponent is trying to crush, trying to hurt, trying to devour the offspring of the woman, the people of God, and that they, that he is wanting to create this hostility and win the war by defeating them. But in this cool moment of irony, Moses' mother is able to thwart Pharaoh's henchmen's, henchmen for three months. She puts him in a basket, puts him in the Nile River, the same river that Herod's throwing, uh, Pharaoh's throwing the babies into, and he drifts and is found by Pharaoh's daughter who raises him. Now talk about irony. This is just God flexing his supremacy. He's just flexing. 
Yeah, Pharaoh, you can try and defeat my people, but I will make it so that your own daughter will raise up the deliverer. From his own household, God is making it so that Pharaoh will be defeated by the offspring that his daughter has brought in. Of course, one day Moses grows up, realizes he's not uh, uh, Egyptian, but Israelite, begins to align himself with the people of God. Hebrews 11 says it's by faith. And he walks out one day and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And he goes and he strikes him down, kills him, and realizes that he's in danger. And Pharaoh, of course, begins to pursue him from there. So Moses runs and he lives for at least 40 years as, a, as some obscure shepherd in the desert in Midian. But Moses is gone. He's in the wilderness. He's, in the, he's a shepherd. The groaning of God's people continues. The bitterness of their bondage is carrying on. And then we hear these powerful words in, he, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 25. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Think of how concise and beautiful that is. God saw the people of Israel... Presumably in their bondage, in their slavery, he saw every crack of the whip. He saw every uh, broken back that came with the reed hit. He saw every scar, every bloody oppression that was happening. God saw and God, what? Knew. They were not alone. In Exodus 3 and 4, God commanded a very reluctant, a very weak a very stuttering Moses to go back to Israel and command Pharaoh to let the people go. And then in Exodus 5 and 6, they actually walk up to a new Pharaoh who's a new serpent, and they command him, God says, let my people go. And here's what Pharaoh says. Again, sounds very serpentine. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now that was infamous words. Who is the Lord? And ironically, the Exodus is all meant to prove who the Lord is. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is Yahweh, this covenant-keeping God that you speak of? And from then on out in chapter 7 through 11, what we have is the breaking of Egypt's gods of the magician priests and eventually of the people. Slowly, plague by plague, God proves that he is the covenant-keeping God who is above all gods. He breaks the magicians. At first they begin to replicate, although they can't take back. They can replicate the plagues. And then eventually even the magician says, who can fight against this God? The people begin to beg Pharaoh, let them go. We'll be broken. We'll be killed. So plague by plague, God proving that he is indeed the promise-keeping Yahweh who has given the covenant to crush the head of the serpent. And then the final judgment comes in Exodus 12 and 13. Pharaoh failed, rejected, rebelled to set God's firstborn son Israel go. And so God said, I will kill your firstborn son. And then comes the great night of nightmare. Death, the Lord himself passing through household by household. But God being gracious and loving and kind forewarns everyone, I am coming and I will strike down everyone 
whose household does not have the blood over the door. He gives them a way, a means of escaping the judgment by taking a lamb without blemish to sacrifice it and to smear the blood over the doorpost to signify to death to pass over them. So through judgment comes their salvation. Through death comes the destruction of Pharaoh and his son. Of course, Pharaoh being broken, realizing that he has been defeated, lets the people go. But it was short lived because by Exodus 14, Pharaoh takes back up the pursuit of the Hebrew slaves and decides that he was going to go and make war with them. So this is the famous part of the story that we all know. They end up on the Red Sea shores. Now, God could have taken them very different directions. Um, History and archaeology shows us that there's a lot of easier ways to get to the promised land. But God likes being backed in the corner because that's where God can show off. God likes it when it looks like he's got nowhere to run because he doesn't run. God gets backed up. God and his people are backed up against the Red Sea. What's going to happen? God shows with a blast of his nostrils, the Red Sea splits. His people walk over on dry ground. They're saved. The Egyptians, the serpents pursue in. They go after them. And then God, with one word, lets the waters return and the Egyptians are killed. The army, army is defeated. Now, if you want to know how this was read by later Hebrews, all you have to do is look up Psalm 89.10. The psalmist reads uh, back on the Exodus, and he speaks of this Rahab. Now, this isn't Rahab as in the book of Joshua Rahab. Rahab in the ancient Middle East was a sea serpent that represented Egypt. So picture the symbolism here. Rahab, this gigantic snake on the sea, That symbolizes Egypt. In Psalm 89.10, here's what it says. You crushed the serpent. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The way the Hebrews read, including the psalmist, understood the exodus was a snake-crushing event. This is when the serpents, the enemies of God, were crushed under the feet of almighty warrior Yahweh. Then you get to Exodus 15, and you see the song of the sea. Now, in your little outline I gave you, you see it's a transition to the next, to the next movement of Exodus. The song of the sea proves that God is triumphant over all of his enemies, that he's the true king. It also establishes the fact that his people will have confidence and faith in God's future deliverance in the promised land. Why? Because he's been faithful in the present to deliver them from Egypt. Now, listen to the fitting words. This is how it transitions. The last, word of the, the last words of the song, and the Lord will reign forever and ever. Now on to the next movement. Now, as, a, as someone who likes to write and equally likes to read, that's a great ending. <laughs> this is close the book there. What a great story. In fact, that's where most of the movies end <laughs> because that's a fitting conclusion. That's great. Let's end it there. And you would think that now that Pharaoh, this this symbolic serpent, is out of the way, that God's people are free to waltz into the dwelling place of God. But the second movement proves that the serpent is not their only enemy. Their own sin is a hindrance to keeping them out of the presence of God. My friends, I, I, I battled over the distinction between sin and Satan because God's at war with both of them. And should I loop them back in together? I want you to understand, even if God destroyed Satan, there's still 
the Satan, the serpent in your heart. There's still sin that dwells within you. God must not just crush the serpent. He's got to crush the serpent that lives inside of you. And he's showing that to his people. It's not their problem. And and they, they weren't just in bondage to Egypt. They were in bondage to sin. Egypt was behind them, but yet Egypt was still inside of them. And so God being a sovereign God must not just defeat the serpent. He must also defeat their sin in order to bring them into the dwelling place of God. Because even though Egypt is crushed, Pharaoh is gone, they are still their biggest hindrances to coming into the dwelling place of God. Almost immediately after the Red Sea, in fact, three days. Now, just, just picture this, okay? Um, uh, don't picture the Red, the Red River because that's not a good correlation. Picture a sea, okay? You just walked across some dry ground three days ago. And we get to the halfway through uh, Exodus chapter 15. And from 15 to 17, here's the constant refrain. The people grumbled. The people grumbled. And they tested the Lord. And they fought. And they were bitter. You hear it over and over and over again. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Test, test, test. Pharaoh's gone. He can't be blamed for their grumbling. Their bitterness to bondage and and slavery is over. So why are they still bitter? Why are they still groaning? Why are they still grumbling? Because they are still sinful, wicked people. That's the message. We get to Exodus 18. And I hate the way that people tend to read Exodus 18. Um, Exodus 18 tends to show up in most CEO leadership books, you know, and they pass it around like this is why you need to duplicate yourself. You need to have this this uh, multiplication of leadership because Jethro comes and he observes Moses judging the people and he tells Moses, set up for yourselves judges of tens, of fifties, of hundreds, and of thousands. And Moses does so and everybody takes away great leadership advice from that. That's not the main message of Exodus 18. What was the point of judges? Why why did the people of God need judges? Judges were there to enforce the law. Judges were there to settle petty disputes, arguments, fighting. When When somebody sinned, suppose somebody brought an idol into their house, who did you bring it to? The judges. The fact that Israel needs so many judges shows just how wicked they actually are. They're so sinful that Moses himself will burn himself out dealing with sinful people. Yes, it's got great leadership application. I'm very grateful for plurality of elders because of this text. But the fact of the matter still remains that the point of Exodus 18 is to show, look how sinful they still are. They need so many judges. They have to, the petty disputes from morning to night. That's the, that's the phrase that's being used. Morning till night. Moses is getting up and dealing with these things. He stole my goat. He took my blanket. He peed on my tent. You know, all these petty arguments where people are fighting and quarreling back and forth and blah, 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 blah. Why? Because they're wicked. You see any correlation with us? Grumble, 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 grumble. (laughs) My friends, 
the people of God make it to a place that's called the dwelling place of the Lord. It's the sanctuary of God that God himself built. It was Mount Sinai. We, we fail to realize Mount Sinai for what it was. Mount Sinai was said by God to be a sanctuary, a place where God himself had built to dwell with his people. So this is kind of a place where they're supposed to meet with God. And in fact, that's what happens. God comes down on the mountain, shakes the mountain in fire and cloud. He thunders and everyone can hear his voice audibly. They can see his presence, so they can't see his face. They see the cloud and the fire, and not one Israelite was standing on their feet that day because every single one of them were trembling under fear of meeting the Most High God. And God himself, in Exodus 20, gives them the law. That's what we call the Ten Commandments. And then he goes on to give them specific laws that will protect their holiness. And then he goes on, and he actually has a banquet dinner with the elders of Israel. I mean, it's so cool. They go up into the mountain, a table is set, and they're all seated, and they can see the feet of God. And they're sitting, eating dinner with God. Just a subtle, hey, this is my plan. I want to dwell with you. I want to eat dinner with you. I want to sup with you. From there, Moses comes out, and God gives a very detailed blueprint of here's my plan, Moses. I'm going to make a tent where me and the people will be together forever. Now it's amazing, and we're gonna we're gonna get get there. Um, it's amazing how many allusions to the Garden of Eden are in the tabernacle, showing that this is kind of a new Eden place. So he lays out the plan. It's a great, another great ending. Great, close the book. We're done. God's gonna dwell with His people. He gives His plan, but then Exodus 32 happens. He's like, hey, come on, people. Exodus 32 happens, and what happens is they build the golden calf, and they break every one of the Ten Commandments. Everything from idolatry to fornication they commit. I don't think Exodus 20 is there, just as this great play, great text that we can build bookmarks off of and build memorials. I think Exodus 20 is actually to, there to uh, prescribe what we should do, and it describes what we don't do. It tells us what we should do, but it also tells us what we don't do. And in Exodus in particular, it says these are the laws of God that God himself gave. The people received them from the mouth of God, and still they were incapable of doing them. They didn't just infringe upon the law. They broke it completely. They built a golden calf 40 days after hearing the voice of God. My friends, I think the Old Testament tells us one simple message. You cannot obey God. You can't dwell with him. Because the moment God brought you into your presence, you'd sin and you'd rebel and you'd be exiled all over again. You have to have definitive solution for your sin. Your sin has to be crushed and defeated just like the serpent has to be crushed and defeated. God has to crush your sinful heart just like he has to crush that serpent's head. Exodus 32 happens and the people live like they're still in Egypt, worshiping false gods, bowing down to this. The best man among them, Aaron, telling the people, bring your gold and I'll make you an idol. Now, it's interesting. I've always thought Aaron was passive in this. That they, I mean, he says, they brought me the gold and I threw it in. 
Ten Commandments, Aaron's kind of sitting there reluctantly hitting, hitting the, can, the cow, whatever he's trying to build. But in the book, it's him who initiates it. Bring me your gold. I'll make you a god. Even the, high, even the, the heir apparent to the priesthood cannot obey God's law. So seeing that the people have rebelled, the Lord's wrath burned hot. And here's what he said. Leave me alone that I may consume them. Can you hear the danger of that? Can you imagine hearing those words as God speaks to Moses and he says, now leave me alone because I'm going to burn them up. Every single one of them. And I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Now there's a tension here because God would have been absolutely just and right to do so. In fact, we can argue that being a just God, he must punish their sin, so he must consume them. So what what kept God from burning them up and completely devouring them? What kept them? What kept God? What satisfied him to the extent that he was willing to relent, as it says? Here's the key. Because of a mediator. Now, it's ironic. Moses is a sinful man himself, but he pictures and typifies what Jesus is going to do at the cross because he stands up and he mediates for them. He intercedes for them, even going so far in Exodus 33, saying, please forgive them, and if not, blot out my name from the book that you have written. You hear what he does? If you won't forgive them, kill me instead. And we know God didn't take him up on it. Why? Because Moses can't die for sins. He'd be dying for his own sin. But the picture and the portrait of what God is, God is going to do is there nonetheless. That God is planning to work through a mediator who will sacrifice himself for the people's sin so that they will not be consumed and so that God will dwell with them. God says, I will not go with you. I will not go with you. I will not go with you. I'll send an angel instead. And Moses says, God, if you do not send us, what's the point of the exodus? If you do not go with us. Moses knew that the whole point was that the people would be brought out of Egypt and would dwell with God. Even if God gave them the promised land and there were no battles to fight, the goal has not been won because God wouldn't be there with them. So he says, God, please go with us. And through the passionate pleas of this intercessor of this mediator who is passionately pleading for God to be present with his sinful people. Here's what God finally says. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Wow. All because a mediator decided to speak up. Moses goes on to say, God, I want to see your glory. Now, when Moses came back down to the people of Israel, this is real famous too. He takes the two tablets and he throws them right? And they break up and crack. That's symbolic that the covenant's been broken. Israel has sinned, rebelled, and the covenant is definitively shattered. Relationship over. But then in Exodus 34, Moses pleads with God to renew the covenant. And he says, God, tell me your name. God, show me your glory. And God says, you cannot see my face and live. And so he tells Moses he's going to put him in the cleft of the rock and put his hand over him. He's going to pass by and Moses will be able to see his back. And then as God's passing by, he sets his name. Again, this is the mission that people would know that he is the Lord. Well, who is the Lord? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, listen to this, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I don't think we appreciate that mystery enough. God says something and gives us a mystery that will not be solved in the Exodus. How can God forgive iniquity and will by no means clear the guilty? That's odd to me. When I think about the very name and nature of God means that he is 100% just not one guilty sinner will go unpunished. Every sin will be paid for. Yet God will forgive. That's a tension that Exodus leaves us with. It's like, sorry, you'll have to wait for the answer to that. But on the basis of him proclaiming his name, that he is a God who is just to punish sin, and he is a God who is gracious in forgiving iniquity, he renews the covenant. Because he knows that there's going to be a day that his justice and grace are going to mingle together. So he's satisfied right now to be patient, to not consume his people, and to go ahead and dwell with them. Why? Because he's looking in the future when he sees the day when justice and grace marry together. Now that is huge, huge event here. And it's because of that transition that we now enter into the third movement of Exodus, the final movement of Exodus, which says that God will dwell with his people. Exodus 35 and 38, we have that big description again. The people did as God said. People are being stirred up by God's spirit to give, to, to, to tithe for the temple, to build the dwelling place of God. You hear echoes like cherubim that are woven in the curtains. Um, there are cherubim that are guarding the the most holy place that are over the Ark of the Covenant. You have the tree-like lampstand. You have the precious metals, the onyx, the gold, all these metals that were named where? Genesis 2. And guess where they're at? On the priest's garment and all over the temple. The whole message is Eden has come again, at least in part. It's not as good as the Eden that was once there, but at least in part, Here's a sanctuary, a garden-like sanctuary that has cherubim in it. Where, guess you see, guess where you see cherubim again at the beginning? It's in Genesis three when God sends angels to guard the entrance. You see this arboreal theme, and it's all meant to show you that the dwelling place of God has been given again. Men may now hear God's voice again. Men may now come into His presence. Bitterness is broken, blessing restored, and we can now have a relationship with God. So 38, the tent goes up. 39, final touches being made. And then I can just imagine this, the tent's done. Moses steps back, sweaty. I can just, he did this in the desert, right? Just sweaty from his work of putting up this tabernacle. And you remember that cloud that led them, that symbolized the presence of God? Here's where we see it again. Final verses of Exodus 40. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Can you just bask in that for a moment? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. By the way, this happens again in Second Chronicles when San, when uh, uh, I'm drawing the name blank, David, uh, and then what, what, Solomon. There you go. I almost said Samuel. There you go. I should know that. Um, Solomon builds the temple. The same thing happens again. Cloud comes down, fills the temple. Priests can't enter in. It gets even more rich than that. It says this, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's basically saying mission accomplished. He defeated the serpent when he crushed Egypt. He defeated sin because of the mediator and because of knowing that one day his grace and justice would be poured out on a perfect mediator who he could actually take up on their offer to give his life. And he set up his dwelling place. Mission accomplished. Now, if we use this scheme, the schematic, serpent crushing, sin defeating, dwelling place of God, is it too hard for you to see where the gospel is? Do you see how redemption applies? What's amazing is when you get to the prophets, for example, like Jeremiah, you hear things like this. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord who lives, who brought up his people uh, out of uh, Egypt, brought his people of Israel out of Egypt, but instead it will be said as the Lord who lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. And then in verses 19 and 20, he says particularly that these are the nations that are coming to take refuge in him. Now, this, this, isn't, this isn't just Israel going back to the promised land. No Israel who went to the promised land after the exile actually thought that the exile was over. They still saw themselves in bondage. When the Romans took over, they still saw themselves in bondage. So what is it talking about? When people from every nation, from all over the globe, come back, God calls them out and calls them into something. That's us. (laughs) We're the people of all nations that have experienced the new exodus. We're the new exodus generation. The Bible actually says there's a day coming when they won't speak of the old exodus anymore. But instead they'll speak of the new exodus that God has accomplished. The greater exodus. The greater redemption. Where Yahweh, the royal redeemer, defeats the serpent, overcomes their sin, and sets up his dwelling place with God. We had Eden, filled with the glory of God. Tabernacle, filled with the glory of God. Temple, Filled with the glory of God. And the word tabernacled among us. And we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Wow. Final tabernacle has come. New dwelling place of God. Jesus Christ. It gets even richer than that. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, took Uh, partook of the same things, and through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. He crushed devil, basically, and deliver. This is the beauty of this passage. All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
My friends, Jesus came, he died on the cross, he crushed the serpent. Jesus came, he died on the cross, he forgave your sin. Jesus came, he died on the cross. And forevermore, the dwelling place of God has been renewed. And men can now meet with God. Jesus is the Passover lamb who's been slain. It is his sacrifice, according to, uh, according to John 12, that has crushed the ruler, the Pharaoh of this world, and has brought the deliverance of people from all nations. My friends, we never quite see ourselves clearly until we see ourselves as people who have experienced the new exodus through Jesus Christ, our new and greater Moses, our new and greater a Passover lamb, the one through whom has stood as our mediator and actually taken the punishment of God. Grace and justice married together at the cross so that we can know the Lord and dwell with him forever. God has crushed the serpent. God has defeated our sin. God has renewed his dwelling place with us. That's the simple message of Exodus. So why spend time reading Old Testament Exodus? How does that help us at all? Well, for the new Exodus generation, I think it helps understand what happened to them then so that we can better worship God now. So that's why we're going to spend weeks in Exodus because this isn't just their story. This is your story as people who have been saved from the bondage of slavery, who have been saved from the ruler Satan, and who have been given forever reconciliation and presence with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My friends, there are some of you today that are still in bondage of slavery, and we get to proclaim the good news of freedom for the captives because Jesus, our new and greater Moses, has brought deliverance through a new and greater exodus. Elders, if you'll go to the back, and if you would like prayer, and you're seeking freedom from certain types of slavery and bondage, then we would like to pray for you. Um, and we would ask for you not to leave today before you get prayed for and talk to us about that. And we want to give you the good news of the gospel today um, as we continue to consider Exodus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. God, I'm a very poor and unqualified man to be able to speak about these things. But God, I praise you as someone who was once a slave to sin and death and Satan and is now freed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I now march through this temporary wilderness called life on my way to the promised land. And one day, Father, you will give the new heaven and new earth where we will dwell with you face to face, and it will be better than Eden because we will never be able to lose it again. Not only will you defeat our sin, you will completely eradicate it from our lives. Father, we long for that day. In the meantime, Father, I pray that you will cease our grumbling. Let us not be like the people of Israel who grumble over everything from water to food to sitting in the sand, Father. God, I pray that you will help us to be grateful worshipers of you. Father, defeat the serpents in our own hearts. Defeat the serpent's hold on us. Thank you that he has been defeated at the cross. And one day he will be completely destroyed, no more to pester us anymore. God, we love you for the gospel. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.